Awaken podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. We want to welcome you to Awaken and our weekly gathering. We pray and invite you to experience God in this time that we have together. If you're new, we want to extend the warmest of welcome to you and invite you to fill out the Connect card on the website. By doing that, someone from our Connections team will get in contact with you and just talk to you about next steps for getting involved at Awaken. There's always a lot going on here, and you can find out about all of the happenings we have in the Awaken Weekly. And this week, hopefully you received an email about all of the Advent offerings that we're having through this season. Um, Let me highlight a few of the things that are coming up in Advent. The first is the Advent kickoff and meal drive start tonight, Sunday the 29th at 5.30 p.m. We will be collecting frozen meals uh, to care for those in our community that have need. Not only will we be collecting them tonight, but throughout the month of December. Also, the Awaken Winter Market opens the week of December 6th. Go online and you can purchase uh, crafts and goods from the artists at Awaken. Also, on December the 12th, um, there is the Advent Watch. Please register for that by December 6th. So today is the beginning of the season of Advent, a season of waiting, of anticipation of the light of God to enter our lives. It's not only the beginning of this season, but we always have the Advent Artist Series where we have a visual and written artist present their work each week, and they will be presenting around the Advent themes of love, joy, peace, and hope. So as we begin, I invite you to take a moment of silence as we enter the darkness and wait. Luke 3, 2 through 18. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went to all the country around Jordan, around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for God, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, and the rough ways smooth, and all the people will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out... Of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. 
The axe is ready at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share one with one, the one who has none, and anyone who has food, enough food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. They, then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering if in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whom sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and the fire, his winnowing fork in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the shaft with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. Kaiser, and the theme of this first week of Advent and the prompt behind this poem I'm here to share with you today is hope. And I was, as I was thinking about what to write, I was mostly thinking of all the times hoping seemed to ultimately wound me more deeply in the end. I spent a good deal of time last year writing about beauty, which for me is the best indicator and evidence of hope. But this year is not last year. This year, when I thought of hope, I thought of the times when I hoped for justice and saw none, where I hoped for truth to triumph over deceit and it often failed to, where I hoped for safety and protection for those around me and they were not spared, and many times when I, where I hoped to see compassion, selflessness, a readiness to mourn with those who mourn and a willingness to put justice above comfort come from people who claimed and quoted the words of the gospel, but instead I often turned away angered and deeply, deeply disappointed. This poem is inspired by my 10-year-old sister who tended a crippled butterfly named Mabel, knowing from the start that it would not live, that it would not migrate south with the other monarchs, and that she would ultimately have to watch it die. And she mourned with genuine sadness the death of this creature who had begun to move towards the sound of her voice. She knew that caring for this butterfly would inevitably lead to loss and grief, but did everything she could to care for it anyway. And that's really the kind of hope that I'm trying to have in this year and this season, a hope that is still able to delight in the beauty of this world, a hope that is able to soften me into love knowing that even in the face of death and disappointment, even with a faith and hope in the eternal, 
Life is still worth caring for and reaching for right here in this moment, in this body, in these circumstances, in this lifetime. Knowing that the world is worth remaining soft for because it is the example that Christ lived and left for us. This is metamorphosis. When despair for the world grows cold within me, and I no longer trust the sound of God on people's lips, I think of my smallest sister, who as a newborn entered her household as I was already preparing to leave it. From my childhood bedroom, now hers, she tells me about the cocoon that appeared in September, beaded with dew and hanging from the pasture gate. My sister inspected it each day until she found it stiff and split open. Then a pulse of color in the grass, glinting like light on rough water, a monarch on the ground at her feet. This was not the way it was supposed to happen. Those wrinkled wings, which required time suspended, meant to expand and unfold as the butterfly grasps its second skin as blood rivers through each fragile vein. If the monarch falls, the wings will likely bend, never to restrain for flight. With autumn ushering that great southern migration, the chance of survival is almost none. The internet will tell you you are better off leaving the flightless monarch for the birds so they may experience its bitterness and leave healthy adults alone to live. My sister took the butterfly anyway, swept her up on a sheet of paper to a box filled with leaves from our oak and birch trees, gave her cotton balls soaked in sugar water, gave her a name. When the days were warm, she would sit with Mabel on the porch in the sun, watching her warped wings flush like live coals, their two bodies growing drowsy in the warmth. Mabel lived nine days, and when she died, my sister buried her by the pond on my family's farm, the same spot where she is drafting plans for a garden, a field of milkweed for next summer's Mabel's, giving them a better chance of hanging on. And it's that garden I think of when hoping feels like the last but only resort for survival. When hoping means hanging on to the monarch who begins a journey to somewhere they will never reach or finish, and the child who offers sugar and shelter to a butterfly that will not live, but whom she refuses to let die in the cold, who holds this brief and bitter life like a miraculous flame in her small hands. Thank you um, Emma, for that beautiful poem and that beautiful story. Um, let's sing together. Song of praise 
and your mother's tears baptize your head be still my heart as light pours around us wonders found us
Have your kiddos close by, maybe pull them a little bit closer and let's uh, sing the song of blessing over our kids.
And now if you would please welcome my new friend, Emily Joy. She is one of our Advent artists and she's gonna come share a little bit about what she's created. Thanks, Mel. Hello. So this is my Advent 2020 painting here. I'm gonna share a little more about what it means as it is an abstract expression of my heart and my experience this year. Um, these gifts, these boxes are filled with kind of my interpretation of my experiences. So I'm gonna open them here and share with you. Um, so the first box is of darkness. And we see the darkness in the black and the green. And we have, those kind of represent like a grief and a joy that I found this year. The gift of the darkness is a joy <laughs> and a deeper faith. And I have these candles. I'm going to be doing a similar candle lighting in my home. <laughs> and I'll light these different colored candles and remember the ways that um, I've grown this year as I look at this as a reminder of kind of my experiences. Um, as an artist, one of my greatest hopes and kind of goals is to find joy and beauty in all of life's colorful experiences. And 2020 has, had, has given me an opportunity to to try to do that journey. Uh, this painting is um, an expression of depression and anxiety that I've walked through caused by past trauma and present traumas that we've, I'm sure you can relate to, walked through this year. Um, but through that, I've seen God and in his even faith, the smallest little stars, there's glitter in the darkness. Um, I feel like Jesus has been a light, and when I don't have sight, I can't see. He has guided me. Um, the second gift is waiting. the theme of Advent and something I've experienced a lot this year. And one of the gifts of waiting is peace. I feel like God has gifted me peace in times of waiting to get out of quarantine or get out of, um, I don't know, just he's given me peace represented by blue. I've got spent many time just walking along the Mississippi or the river and kind of see the blue running throughout like a river through the darkness, running like in and through it. I found some slowly but surely experienced healing in awaiting as God's grace overflowed like a refreshing river. His spirit cleansed and filled my heart and soul and his living waters revived my spirit. He was, he was present in the process of waiting. 
I'm going to open the gift of, of longing. <clears throat> Which opens to love, <laughs> represented by white. Um, kind of looks in this sort of like clouds kind of surrounding. Um, my notes from longing. <laughs> Some of the words in the song rem- or reminded me of Emmanuel, God with us, and this longing that we experience. I've experienced all year long, and it's a theme of Advent. We have been longing for Jesus' presence in our suffering. I have found his love in my weakness, in the mundane and the daily struggles, as well as the daily joys in my life and in the world at large. God is with us, Jesus is with us, and he loves us in and through. The last gift of expectation, we find hope and opens our expectation of a brighter future is kind of glittering and golden. And that is seen throughout and underneath. The first thing I painted was golden underneath this and it, it's just shining through but covered a lot by the darkness. Um, though it's there and the light is shining and there's a great expectation of hope at the end of this unprecedented year um, in many ways. And I'm expectant for brighter days ahead. I'm hopefully awaiting the end of a lament and bursts of joy and praise and worship and love for God in celebration of Jesus coming and remembering his coming as a child and as our savior, Messiah, and his expectation of him coming again. I am looking forward to sharing this Advent in remembering these things. Thank you. Well, welcome to the first Sunday of Advent, friends, and um, thank you so much to all of, uh, our guests who uh, came and were with us, Owen, um, Ava, and Oliver, Emma, and Emily. Um, so appreciate your willingness to participate and bring what you offer. Um, today we begin a new series entitled The Prophets of Christmas, and we're going to be looking at um, some characters in the story of Christmas. Um, Simeon and Anna, John the Baptist, as read this morning, the angels, Mary, uh, those who heard a word from the Lord and brought it, who invited those that they uh, were surrounded by to hear this new vision for the future. And we begin with John the Baptist this morning. And uh, he's a bizarre character, is he not? Um, uh, I mean, the guy uh, lives in the desert for most of his life. He comes out kind of um, unbeknownst to anyone. His hair is probably disheveled. His uh, hair was made of camels, or his, uh, his clothes were made of camel's hair. The guy ate bugs. He was probably a beekeeper. He's, they say he eats, ate wild honey. Um, he reminded me actually of a guy in college named Philip. Philip was a drifter. 
Uh, he would just kind of like wander in and out of campus. Uh, the guy never combed his hair. He was just reeked of patchouli, which covered up God knows what other smells. Um, he was always wearing the same clothes. And we were pretty sure he lived in a van down by the river, like no, no joke. Uh, but this guy, and he always had an acoustic guitar. Like this is kind of how I imagine John the Baptist to be, but don't be deceived. Philip was a lot smarter than we gave him credit for. And I think John the Baptist actually uh, plays a bigger role in the story of Israel than maybe we think he might. And certainly a major role in the story of Christmas. Dare I say his role uh, and what he said is as applicable today as it was when he first shared his message. And I have to believe that John's message, like he rolls out of the desert and had to come as a total shock to the people who heard it first, right? To all the religious folks, the temple officials, come on out to the desert, to the wilderness and repent, which you don't normally say to the people who are inside of in, right? Repent and be baptized. Um, so I'm gonna try something this morning. Um, I, and I may not work, but God, I hope it does. Uh, I've written a bit of a parable for today. So I'm gonna ask you to just kind of go with me and imagine this scenario. So maybe close your eyes and just kind of like imagine what you're hearing and we'll see how this goes. So imagine a scenario where you have all the right people with all the right last names and all of those people who have married into the families with all of the right last names. And all these people are gathered together in the city where all the right people and, uh, with the right last names and all their wealth and all their power and all their prestige, they've funded the creation of this massive campus. This goes on for blocks, this destination place. And at this compound, all the things that are necessary for the people with all the right last names to thrive, you've got all the right foods, you've got all the right music, the right art, the right architecture, the right books, all the right customs and rituals, they're happening daily to keep all the right people with all the right last names convinced that this is where the action is. This is where the life is. This is where God is. And then one day, all the right people with all the right last names begin to hear a raucous noise. The sound of a crowd gathering, the sound of laughter and drinking and merriment and music and pure joy, like the kind of joy that you see in a kid when he finds something that he's lost. And the noise isn't coming from inside the compound. It's actually with all the right food and all the right music and all the right rituals. In fact, it's coming from outside of the city. And not only that, some of your friends with all the right last names are going out there and they're not coming back. So you leave the compound with all the right people and all the right last names that, have, that they've built and you follow the noise, the growing light of campfires out beyond the city limits to the place that has no name and there is this drifter. This guy with all the wrong clothes, eating all the wrong food, saying all the wrong things. And his message is this, your last name doesn't matter. And your compound with all the right food and all the right art and all the right music and all the right architecture and all the right rituals, they are completely and totally missing the point. You think they will bring life and joy and nearness to God, but they won't. They're doing the opposite. So change your last name. Change what you're eating, change your life, change your address, change your music, turn your life around and go in a different direction. You think you live in a house that will keep you warm and safe, but that house is on fire. And I am telling you this so that you can get out. Now, I mean, can you imagine the shock and disbelief that you might feel in this moment? Like, who is this guy and what is he even talking about? Like, who deputized him to tell us, the people with all the right last names, that we're on the outside of this new thing that God is doing when we represent God? The audacity of this guy, and does anyone even know his last name? 
You can open your eyes if you had them closed. And I don't know what that did for you, but I think that's like the story of John the Baptist, honestly. Like he shows up on the scene after years of living in the wilderness out in the desert, which, by the way, if we know our Hebrew, the word for wilderness is midbar, which comes from the word deber, which means to speak. And we learn that God often speaks in the wilderness. And so this guy who rolls out of the wilderness has a message from God. And that message is a sharp one. Like it cuts to the heart and soul of all the right people with all the right last names. One that reminds the people of who God is and what God is like and what God will be like when God comes back and when God will come back. So to get John the baptizer and to really get what he's saying, I want to suggest you need to have a sense of three things. The expectation of the people, what the prophets of old are saying, and third, you have to be able to hear the broken record that just keeps playing when you talk about the prophets. By the time John wanders out of the desert and starts preaching to all the people with the right last names, there is so much expectation about what God would do and what God would, when God would come back that you could cut it with a knife. So on your screen that uh, you're watching at home, you'll see in just a moment a little graph that has uh, essentially a crude distillation of Israel's history. It's just bullet points, but it sort of shows the picture, right? It begins with the Exodus. These are people who were enslaved. They were in Egypt and God sends Moses to liberate them. So they come out of Egypt and out of uh, the hand of Pharaoh and through the Red Sea and into the wilderness where they wander for a bit of time, about 40 years and a generation's worth of people. At which point they find the promised land and they enter the promised land, led by Joshua. Now, it doesn't take long for these people to forget where they've come from and what God is like. And so these judges come and we talked last week about Deborah, one of the judges who tells the people like, come back and remember you were enslaved and now you're not and this is who God is. And yet the people keep forgetting over and this cycle happens again and again. Until at the end they say, hey, we need a king. You know, everybody else has got a king. Why can't we have a king? So God says, fine, you can have a king. And you get Saul and David and Solomon. And then those, that kingdom becomes two kingdoms. There's a church split. It happens all the time, people. Two kingdoms, Judah and Israel. And then those two kingdoms get ransacked. They get taken into exile. 722 for Israel, 586 for Judah. And then the people start coming back in fits and starts until there's enough people living in the land, but there's still the sense of exile. And then there are 400 years of silence. 400 years from Malachi until the moment that Jesus comes to the world. And keep in mind, during those 400 years, there's all these foreign powers who are occupying them. You've got the Persians, you've got Alexander the Great and the Greeks, you've got the Egyptians, you've got the Syrians. And then as you get closer and closer to Jesus, 167 to 160, there's the Maccabean Revolt. This is a little history lesson. And this incites a, 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 a huge amount of rising hope in the people that God might be coming back. And this is what we've all been waiting for, only to be squashed by the Romans. And if you know your history in 70 AD, they destroy the temple once and for all for the second time. By the time John the Baptist shows up on the scene in Palestine, there was an expectation that ran very deep that God would do what God had always promised to do. The Jews were waiting for something, that God would rescue them and come back and restore Israel and kick out the Romans. They were waiting for the Messiah to come because that's what the scriptures said would happen. So every Jew in Jesus' day and John the Baptist's day was waiting for a return from exile, a true return from exile, a defeat of evil that whatever occupying power at that time Rome, they would be defeated and kicked out and that God would return to Zion, to Jerusalem, to the capital city, to the temple and would rule and reign from there. 
which is why all the right people with all the right last names are so committed to the temple and holiness and sanctity and sacrifice and purity because these people were convinced that God's return was connected to and contingent upon their holiness and temple and sacrifice and purity. And so they were all waiting, kind of like we are, for a vaccine. (laughs) Okay, that was a terrible joke. I'm sorry, I couldn't help it. We've been waiting for nine months. They were waiting for 400 years, people, that God would return because they believed the prophets of old. So to get John, you have to understand this giant expectation of the people. Everybody was thinking, is this the guy? Is this the time? What will happen? When will it happen? So you have to understand that, and then you have to understand what the prophets have been saying forever and ever. And the prophets of old were talking Jeremiah, Zechariah, Isaiah, Malachi. Think about a couple of these things that we hear about during Christmas. Isaiah 9, for unto us a child is born, a son is given. For unto us a child is given. Right? I can hear my grandma and grandpa up in the choir at Grace Church Roseville. Isaiah 35, the desert will be parched, or the desert uh, and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and bloom. Such a beautiful picture. Isaiah 55, come to the waters, you who are thirsty, come by. You who have no money, come and drink. The suffering servant of Isaiah 42 and 49 and 61. The servant who brings justice and a new song in all the earth. The servant who brings restoration to Israel and a light to the nations. The spirit of the Lord is on me. I come to proclaim good news and set the captives free and proclaim the year of the Jubilee. Jeremiah 33, I will give the people a new heart and write a new covenant. Zechariah 36 I will give them a heart of flesh and make these dry bones dance. These are the prophets of old. And Zechariah 1 and and Malachi chapter 3 sum up what all of the prophets have been saying for the whole time. And it's a very simple phrase. And it's return to me and I will return to you. Malachi 3 says, Ever since the time of your ancestors have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Zechariah 1, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah. Tell the people, this is what the Lord says, return to me and I will return to you. The message of the prophets of old that has been ringing for ages, which the gospel writers are writing John the Baptist into when they quote Isaiah 40, comfort, comfort Israel, in our passage this morning. God will return to Israel and do a new thing. And the invitation for the the people of God, is to return to God. So return to me and I will return to you. Turn to me and I will return to you. Turn around, repent, leave the temple, change your last names and get ready for what God is about to do, which is return. This is the message of John. This is what he's telling the people. So you have to understand the expectation of the people. You have to understand what these prophets have been saying. And then this broken record that keeps playing and has been playing. You guys, it's COVID. It's ugly out there. And I don't know about you, but as a parent, I feel like a broken record. Like, maybe I'm the only one out there, but like, I swear, people wake up in my house and it's like they have not heard, if you live here, you have to do the dishes. If you live in this house, you have to pick up the poop after the dog. And you can't let the chickens go without food and water. They won't lay eggs anymore. You have to clean your room. And for goodness sakes, you can't watch screens every single day, all day. It literally, like, wake up and it's like you say these things and there's just indignation. Like, people are so upset by this, like they've never heard it before. I feel like a broken record. The response of the people after hearing John the Baptizer and his message is nearly comical. They've been hearing this message for 
centuries, for generations, and they say, what should we do, right? The crowd says, what should we do? And he says, clothe the naked, feed the hungry. It's not that hard, people. The tax collectors are like, what should we do? And John's like, don't steal from your countrymen. Don't extort vulnerable people. Act justly. The soldiers come and they say, what should we do, John? And John says, listen, don't extort those who have less than you do. Act justly. It's the same message it's been playing the whole time. I read from Malachi 3, verses 6 and 7, but Malachi 3, 1 through 5 is too good to pass up. This is the prophet. He says, I will send my messenger, God, saying, I will send my messenger who will prepare a way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure this day of coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire, a launderer's soap. That's a tough one. He will sit as a refiner, purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. And then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. Offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will finally be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by. So I will come and put you on trial, says the Lord. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers. And here it is. Against those who defraud laborers of their wages. Against the widows Uh, who oppress widows and the fatherless, who deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. The record is broken and it just keeps playing like the same tune over and over, the same eight bars of the chorus. Don't forget the alien, the orphan, the foreigner, the widow. Don't oppress those who are vulnerable. Look out for those who are on the edges. This is what God has been asking the people of Israel to do since the beginning. So John stands outside of the temple, built by all the, all, by all, the, all the people with the right last names, right? All the, the Jewish people, all the Israelites. He's standing outside of the temple in the wilderness, and he's telling the people who built the temple, who have all the right last names, you have to come out here. Why? Because you are in danger of missing the point. With all of your fanfare and your ballyhoo and your tomfoolery and your sacrifices and your ritual purity. So he says, come outside of the city and be baptized. Repent. Turn around. Which is something you say to an outsider. What would it be like if Jesus walked into the church in 2020 and looked us in the eye and said, repent. Like you got to come outside the church building and repent. Stop doing what you're doing because the more important things, the things that I care the most about, you're forgetting. This is what John is saying. He tells them what the prophets have been telling them for generations. God is returning to Zion and and what God cares about is what God expects to find you doing which is feeding the hungry and clothing the naked, working for justice among the poor and the vulnerable and the oppressed. Why? Because that's where God found you when God gave you that name. So as we approach the manger of Christmas this year, and we come to this scene where the light of God comes into the world, does the prophet John have anything to say to the church in 2020? Do the prophets of old have anything to say to the church in 2020? 
to you and me. Jesus once said, they who have eyes and ears, let them see and hear what the Spirit is saying. That's my prayer for us. Pray with me. God, as we take a few moments in silence, I pray that the words of John, which beckon and invite and call a group of people who assumed that all was well, who assumed that they had done all they needed to do to be invited to the party, to be welcomed in the house. And this challenge comes from John. Don't forget, you're expecting God to arrive and to come in power and to kick out the Romans and do so maybe even with might and military, but there's something else coming around the corner, and I really hope you don't miss it. It will come in meekness and in service, in humility, and in sacrificial love, even for its enemy. So God, in the next few moments, I pray that you would find us where we are, remind us of the things you care deeply about, and invite us to take whatever step, whatever movement is next for us towards your heart, towards the things you care about. Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. John was an outsider, and he was treated as such, suspect, not to be trusted. Jesus was an outsider, often treated as such. And Mel is going to close uh, our time before we move towards communion with a new song this morning that asks this question about Jesus and his status and what his life was like. Um, so I want to invite you to let it wrestle with you and provoke um, you to think about who is Jesus and who is this John the Baptist and what, what does it mean to be a refugee and treated as an outsider. Thank you.
every Monday night, I, uh, I go down to Mississippi Market and I buy a loaf of bread. And today, all that was left was this giant brick of rye bread. So <clears throat> I guess we're going to be making Rubens at home. And I wonder if the people at Mississippi Market, like, if, they've got, if they're on to me yet, like, when I walk in, if they're like, oh, here comes the bread guy. <laughs> so bizarre. I get a loaf of bread and a Wisco pop, which is like a ginger soda. That's my thing. That has nothing to do with what I'm about to say. I'm sorry. Focus. We're about to take communion which is uh, a table that the people of God have come to forever and ever and ever. And we come to it again tonight. And we're reminded that a body was broken and blood was shed for a new, a new deal, a new thing, uh, a new way of being human in the world. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And whenever you eat of it, do it in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took a cup and he blessed it. And he said, this is my blood, which is shed for you. And whenever you drink of this cup, do it in remembrance of me. So this table that we come to is not the church's. It is the Lord's. And it is made ready for those who love God. Those who want to love God more. So come, you who have much faith, or if you have a little bit of faith, or you've been here often, um, or not for a long time, or ever before, you who have tried to follow, and you who have failed, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. So come not because I invite you, or the church invites you, but because the resurrected Christ invites you to come and be fed and be known at the table. So as you take the bread, I invite you to hear these words the body of Christ broken for you. Take and eat. And as you take the cup, I'd invite you to hear these words, the blood of Christ shed for you. Take and drink. Friends, I love Advent. It's my favorite season of the year. It's my favorite five weeks of the year in the church calendar. And I was sitting here tonight watching all these things happening and listening to the poem and the stories about art that was made and I just had this longing that you were here. And that comes up every now and again. And I try not to, I try to feel it, you know, all the way down. So we so miss being together and we miss seeing your faces and we trust that this too shall pass, as my mom always told us, and I know that it will. Um, but I hope that this Advent journey is, uh, is one that is life-giving for you and uh, brings you to all the places that you need to go uh, as we wait and anticipate and long for the coming light of God. So the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift up his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. Lord, lift up his countenance to you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. And the people said together, amen. Grace and peace, friends. See you next week. Find us on
Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awaken Community. Or on Twitter, Awaken Community. See you next time.